There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by the generous support of our beloved sustaining patrons who've subscribed to support this podcast through our Patreon page. It's listeners like you that make this show possible. To help keep the show going and receive bonus episodes such as the one I'm currently working on about the life and times of Aaron Burr, make sure you go check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash ambio and sign up to become a recurring donor. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 20, The Progress of Law. Last time, we talked about the beginning of the end of the Federalist Party, as Thomas Jefferson won the presidency and his Republican Party won control of Congress. Despite the resounding popular rejection of their party by the electorate, the Federalists were unaware that their electoral exile would prove to be a permanent vacation and the lame-duck Federalist government moved quickly to confirm John Marshall as the new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and maneuvered to further ensconce themselves into the federal judiciary, where they could continue to exercise some influence while they were otherwise wandering the political wilderness. But we'll come back to that more in a later episode. But for now, rather than charging ahead, I wanted to go back in order to flesh out our understanding of the courts, because we all might intellectually understand what courts are, and some of us may even understand how they operate. But as an institution, the Supreme Court doesn't just appear out of a vacuum. It's part of an evolutionary process. The role of courts in the United States has changed dramatically in just the last 200 years. In fact, John Marshall will prove to be a major evolutionary catalyst during his time on the court. So in order to have a better understanding of what role the Supreme Court played and what the judiciary meant to Marshall's contemporaries in 1801, I believe it's important to understand the serpentine course by which courts developed first in England and then in their North American colonies before we can appreciate and effectively measure John Marshall's leadership of the Supreme Court and his influence over the course of American jurisprudence. Now to put something approaching a complete picture together, 
it turns out I had to go way back and traverse the contextual mists of time to when the Anglo-Saxons came to rule Britain. And one of the many things they brought with them to that former Roman province of Britannia was their barbarian continental concept of justice. I'm just going to warn you at the outset here that I'm stepping out of my comfort zone and will exclusively be painting in broad strokes for you here. So if I miscategorize anything or misstate something, please feel free to shoot David Crowther an email over at the History of England podcast. So, while Anglo-Saxon kings made sporadic attempts to record statutes and construct law codes, these were often incomplete and complicated by extant traditions and customs. Without a clearly referenceable set of laws, it would be difficult to have any unifying interpretation of those laws. Therefore, there couldn't be a great deal of centralization in the administration of justice. So prior to the 10th century, it wouldn't have been uncommon for churls or freemen to assemble at folkmoots, which when translated from its original form can literally mean thing, as in the way a modern might say, I'm going to the town hall for the thing tonight, to denote a town hall meeting, and conceptually the idea here isn't totally dissimilar. At these moots, the community would come together not only to make local political decisions, but resolve disputes and decide how to apply laws to particular cases, and that application would likely vary widely according to time and place. As England evolved and cases got bigger and more complicated, folk moots were largely displaced by hundred courts, which were administrative subdivisions of shires, and then by shire moots, which dealt with larger regions of a kingdom. And in case this was beginning to sound orderly or uniform, I assure you they were not, as the various kings of the Heptarchy also invited the church to hold their own local courts, ensuring things like jurisdiction, remained nice and confusing. One aspect of Anglo-Saxon culture we don't share, but their authorities seem to struggle with greatly, were blood feuds. These often occurred between families when one member of a family killed another member of a family, which we all know will happen from time to time. Now these deaths do not seem to have been treated as criminal matters and what they developed, and what became a major underpinning of their justice system for a real long time, was a sort of transactional indemnity system called the Guild or Man Price. So if Olaf's son killed Rolf's son, Olaf would owe Rolf a specified amount of money, and there of course was a sliding scale covering the different values a person's life was worth based on that person's place in the social hierarchy. There were, however, offenses that were considered criminal such as poaching the king's deer, where guilt or innocence needed to be determined by the most eminently reasonable methods available, by which I of course mean trials, by ordeal, or combat. Well, strictly speaking, there weren't only two options. Oaths could carry great weight, and if you were considered to be an individual whose word was good, your oath might be enough to clear you of charges. However, if you were considered untrustworthy or just weren't noble and couldn't find enough compurgators, or men of good repute or high status to speak for you, you'd then have to undergo something like trial by ordeal. For ordeals, the accused would be forced to do things like carry red-hot iron bars or pluck a stone out of a cauldron of boiling water. 
or something equally painful and dangerous. Then, if the injuries had begun to heal after about three days, clearly God sided with the accused, thus proving their innocence. But if, say, the wound got infected and they died, well then they were clearly guilty. Of course, another popular option was tying up the accused and throwing them into a lake, where, if they were innocent, they'd sink, because this is all completely rational. In 1066, the Normans took over the show and introduced the greatest innovation to English law ever. Yes, under their early rule, criminal and civil disputes could now be decided through trial by combat, where victory at arms proved innocence or proved lawsuits. Parties could fight between themselves, though choosing a champion was also a very popular option. But for some reason, trial by combat gradually fell into disuse. Though apparently, it stayed on the books, since in 1818, someone tried to invoke this right, and the powers that be realized that, yeah, this was still an option, and they quickly banned it. But lest you think I've completely gone off the rails here, and the talk of shires, moots, and trials by combat has got you thinking that you've landed in Middle-earth, or alternatively Westeros, fear not, this wasn't all a tangent, but some important backstory to the development of real, honest-to-goodness courts and the English common law system, which would be largely transplanted to North America. So just stick with me here. By the middle of the 12th century, we're now reaching a point where proper courts would begin to be established, and the process by which they'd one day come to be independent of the monarch and the government, a hallmark of the modern American judiciary, had begun, as Henry II did much to initiate the normalization of justice in England. In 1166, Henry issued a declaration at the Assize of Clarendon, establishing various other assizes, or courts, that would convene in a town on a regular but non-permanent basis. Clarendon was the largest of these and would have a general jurisdiction, while others would be set up with specialized jurisdictions as well, like estate matters, for instance. Even then, only certain defined disputes rising to a specified value could even be heard in these assizes, but there were important reforms being made here nonetheless, such as the justices in Eyre, which can be thought of as, say, the original circuit court judge who would travel from town to town and who would convene what to modernize might appear to be grand juries that could bring forth charges as opposed to findings of guilt or innocence. However, it should be noted that if charges were brought, the only trial available to the accused remained the ordeal, since by now, even the use of oaths and compurgators had significantly been curtailed, and it would remain that way until 1216, when the Fourth Lateran Council forbade clergy from participating in ordeals, and only then would trials begin deciding these questions, using, usually, but not always, 12-person juries. In 1178, Henry kept up his program of reform and chose five of his advisors, quote, to hear all the complaints of the realm and to do right, end quote. And this was the origin of the Court of Common Pleas, which was followed, over time, by the King's Bench and the Court of Exchequer, which were standing national courts. The large structural changes to the English system initiated by Henry II removed much power from local barons 
and set justice on the road to standardization, as gradually local customs were replaced by new national laws, and significantly, these national laws theoretically applied to everyone and were therefore held to be common, hence the moniker common law. Following the original model of the king's counselors serving as judges, the positions were eventually opened up to clergy or knights until 1268 when a sergeant-at-law, who was an advocate who argued in the court of common pleas, was appointed a judge, beginning the process of professionalizing the judiciary, meaning that before long the expectation would be for individuals sitting on the bench to have some kind of actual honest-to-goodness legal experience. The next big step for the courts was getting out from under the domination of the executive, which, in the English case, means the monarch. By the end of the 14th century, you can see the judiciary increasingly sought to avoid politics and to separate from the monarch through avoiding thornier issues, though doing so could be complicated. For instance, while it was generally accepted that after the Magna Carta, the king was beholden to the law the same as everyone else, through the English Reformation, when the king became the head of the new Anglican Church, and therefore the arbiter of God's law in England, one could see how this made an uneasy relationship between the king, as the principal lawmaker, and the judge, as the interpreter of that law. Nonetheless, progress continued to be made and the judiciary won a major victory on the road towards independence when in 1642 Charles I agreed that judicial appointments should continue during good behavior rather than at the king's pleasure. The decreasing political nature of these offices is also evidenced in the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 following the English Civil War when all twelve judges in the common law courts maintained their offices. However, there was a step back in 1668 when judicial appointments were once more made to be during pleasure. In the last years of Charles II's reign then saw him fire eleven of his judges, and his brother and successor James II sacked a total of twelve judges himself over the course of his short three-year reign. It all began to turn around, however, when James abdicated in the face of the 1688 Glorious Revolution, and a House of Commons committee drew up the Heads of Grievances, which was a list of demands presented to the new king, William III, which included such hits as paying the judges' salaries out of the public funds, and prevented judges being removed or suspended from office unless by due cause of law. And these demands were accepted and further formalized a short time later in the 1701 Act of Settlement, which, doing much else that's got nothing to do with us, codified that judges were to go on in service during good behavior and can only be removed by the relatively high bar of both houses of parliament, which essentially cemented judicial independence from the monarch, if not parliament, at least in the mother country. This progress was less perceptible in the colonies. There are reasons for this, of course, the ad hoc nature of establishing settlements, the quasi-private nature of the joint stock companies, which were responsible for many of the early settlements, the relatively small size of the initial populations, England's general neglect of the colonies, and the political disunity of the North American settlements. All of this flew in the face of the idea of an overarching standardized system of justice. 
Now, rather than attempt to outline the founding and evolution of courts in each of the colonies because that would be really messy, I'm going to continue in the vein of a general overview here. The power to establish courts in most instances was granted to the governor or leader of the colony through the foundational charter, so was theoretically an extension of the king's royal prerogative. The earliest court would likely have been convened for specific reasons, let's say Smith accusing Jones of stealing his chicken. The governors were almost always not legal experts, so there wasn't a lot of nuanced argumentation at these trials and judges largely relied on natural reason to sort out the issue. So the governor, usually acting on his own, though sometimes he may have utilized his counsel, or less frequently a jury, could just decide to cut the chicken in two, give half to Smith, give half to Jones, and call it a day. But as the settlements became larger, and the population more numerous, it wouldn't be uncommon to see the founding of less ad hoc courts, and a more organized judicial system evolving to keep up with the proliferation of more and more complicated disputes. From the bottom up, the system looked something like this. First, there were county trial courts, presided over by justices of the peace, who were given jurisdiction over certain criminal and civil cases, an exclusive jurisdiction over civil matters involving less than a defined monetary value. Next, there were trial courts presided over by a chief justice, along with some associates, who could hear appeals from the lower courts and whose jurisdiction extended over the entire colony, which included an original jurisdiction over all felonies and a civil jurisdiction over cases involving more than a defined monetary value. And it wouldn't be unheard of for these judges to sometimes practice some light circuit traveling. These trial courts had largely been established around the beginning of the 18th century when governors had begun to back off direct participation in the judicial proceedings of the colonies, though in most instances the governor and his council constituted a court of last appeal, creatively called the Court of Appeals, removal to which seems to be an ill-defined process and whose proceedings were strangely informal. By far the strangest aspect of the colonial court system was the extent to which the courts were entangled with other parts of the government. As we already mentioned, the king's prerogative to establish courts was often extended through the colony's foundational charter, and though by 1688 the executive had been stripped of that power in Britain, it doesn't seem to have necessarily extended to North America, as kings were continuing the practice as late as 1732 in Georgia. The collusion in this regard is obvious. The governor serving at the king's pleasure was his primary political and judicial agent in the colony. Though not to be left totally out in the cold, over time some colonial assemblies were able to hem the governor in through legislation on procedure. Initially, some charters had even granted colonial legislatures appellate jurisdiction over trial courts, some others had been given the power to create courts by the charters or came to possess that power later, but overall, the colonies other than Rhode Island and Connecticut would lose those rights by the eve of the revolution. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Following the revolution, North America was no longer a collection of fractious, disparate colonies, but fractious, disparate, independent states bound together by the Articles of Confederation. Surely the new national government had a court to help standardize justice, which served as the progenitor of the later Supreme Court, right? Well, maybe. Kinda, sort of. One of the many weaknesses of the Articles was the fact that it created no permanent national judiciary. However, the Congress of the Confederation was given the power to create courts to determine prize cases, which are specific sorts of cases related to enemy commercial vessels captured on the high seas, but it actually used this power to establish the Federal Court of Appeals to resolve those cases. So if you squint at it just enough, just the right way, you might actually be able to see a precedent for the establishment of the later federal court system. Maybe. Overall, the failure of the Articles of Confederation were complex, and we discussed them at some length in earlier episodes. But one thing I'd add is that those who eventually supported overthrowing the Articles were given a big boost from destabilizing events such as Shays' Rebellion because it helped to stoke fears among the propertied and merchant classes that the new nation was descending into anarchy and made reformers talk about setting up a more vigorous federal government one that included a national judiciary capable of providing order and stability, a salve for rattled nerves. The effects these disorders had can be clearly seen in the speech future Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth gave at the Connecticut Ratifying Convention, justifying the federal judiciary. 
we see how necessary for union is a coercive principle. No man pretends to the contrary. The only question is, shall it be a coercion of law or a coercion of arms? There is no other possible alternative. Where will those who oppose a coercion of law come out? A necessary consequence of these principles is a war of the states, one against the other. I am for the coercion of law, that coercion which acts upon only delinquent individuals. The institutions which emerged from the 1787 Constitution were, to be sure, creations of compromise, and the new federal judiciary was no exception. As other articles had been, Article Three was also painted in the broadest strokes possible, so as to gloss over narrower disagreements and thereby allow the framers the comfort of moving forward under more general principles. Part of the reason for breaking the narrative in this episode is to try to flesh out the historical context of the differences of opinion that will emerge following the establishment of the new federal government. So let's take a look at Article 3, which is the shortest description of any branch of government in the Constitution. Section 1 says, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one supreme court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the supreme and inferior courts, shall hold offices during good behavior, and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. I think that's pretty straightforward, so we can probably roll right along to Section 2. The judicial power shall extend to all cases, in law and equity, arising under the Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made, under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizen of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizen thereof, and foreign states, citizens, or subjects. In all cases, affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all other cases, before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have an appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. Trial of all claims, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crime shall have been committed. But when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. Okay, admittedly, this section is a little heftier and might need some unpacking. So, mainly it deals with the court's jurisdiction, the types of cases the court can and can't rule on. Significantly, the section asserts that the court can only hear real cases and controversies, meaning there has to be real adversarial legal actionings ongoing. The court will not hear hypothetical cases and issue advisory opinions. It's also worth noting the fact that the language used in the first part, which applies to cases or controversies arising under the law of the United States, means federal law, 
and not the law of individual states. And this is an example of American federalism at work. State courts, and not federal courts, will far more often than not decide the vast majority of legal questions in the United States, as there's much more state law on the books than there are federal laws. In this section, we also see the establishment of the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction, which are cases they can hear first, as opposed to cases heard elsewhere first, and then appealed. I'll advise you to put a little asterisk by this concept, because original jurisdiction is going to be something we're going to run into again down the road. But now moving on to the next stop of the Foreshadow Express is Article 3, Section 3, which defines treason, saying, Treason against the United States shall consist in levying war against them, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act, or on confession in open court. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture, except during the life of the person attainted. Okay, first thing I want to address is the evocative House Bolton-esque imagery of the phrase, no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood. Essentially, this just means that the punishment for treason can't be made to extend from the guilty party to their children, as it theoretically could under English law, where such crimes could be seen to have tainted the bloodline. And not only that, the Constitution also says that if a convicted traitor had their property confiscated by the government, that property must be inheritable at the death of the traitor. And that's it. That's Article 3. That's the entirety of the American judicial system in the Constitution. Did you catch that part about judicial review? No? Huh. That's weird, right? Anyway, established as it was under the Constitution, you might ask how the courts had fared since the new government began its operations up to the time Marshall took over. Well, friends, I will tell you. One of the first acts of the first Congress was the Judiciary Act of 1789, which laid out the essential features of the federal court system, many of which are recognizable still. The act allowed for a six-member Supreme Court, comprised of a chief justice and five associates. Under them sat three circuit courts, consisting of two Supreme Court justices and one local district judge. And finally, 15 district courts, one for each state, plus two for the territories of Kentucky and Ohio. The Act of 1789 allowed for two annual sessions of the Supreme Court in February and August. And when the court opened its doors for the first time on February 2, 1790, it did so inside rooms at the Exchange in New York City and was met by crickets. Yes, by the time John Marshall joined the court in 1801, it had only decided a meager 55 cases. To some extent, this makes sense, since most of the cases had to wind their way up to the high court through the appeals process. However, we shouldn't construe this to mean that the justices were idle. They spent the bulk of their time riding the circuit, potentially spending months traversing long distances, enduring bad roads and bad inns, just to preside over cases in poorly appointed rooms for a few weeks a year. So considering this deal probably sucked, combined with the lack of business and the brief semi-annual terms of the court, 
it's not surprising that there was a great deal of turnover. To put what I mean into context, John Marshall was the fourth Supreme Court Justice when he was confirmed in 1801. That's four Chief Justices in just 11 years. Juxtapose that for a moment, if you will, with the fact that the current Chief, John Roberts, is coming up on his 11th year in the role, and the three Chief Justices before him, William Rehnquist, Warren Burger, and Earl Warren, served a combined 52 years as Chief. It's understandable that the early court might be said to have suffered from a leadership problem. It's tough on an institution when its top guy describes it the way the first Chief Justice, John Jay, did when he turned down President Adams' offer of reappointment in 1801, writing that the court was so defective that it would never obtain the energy, weight, and dignity which were essential to its affording due support to the national government, nor acquire the public confidence and respect which, as the last resort of justice of the nation, it should possess. But following the election of 1800, most Federalists had more practical worries on their mind. They were on borrowed time and facing the looming specter of an incoming administration and congressional majority they viewed as unfriendly radical Jacobins, determined to bring the French guillotine to American shores. Congressional Federalists moved to do what they could to try and mitigate what they saw as the potential damage the Republicans might seek to do. What they had left at their disposal was the judiciary. The lame duck incumbents acted with vigor and turned out the Judiciary Act of 1801, which was their attempt to turn the federal courts into, as Jefferson described it, a stronghold. There the remnants of federalism are to be preserved and fed from the treasury. And from the battery, all the works of republicanism are to be beaten down and destroyed. With this act, the Federalists reduced the number of Supreme Court justices to just five, in hopes of minimizing the number of appointments Jefferson might be able to make to the high court while simultaneously increasing the number of district judges by five and creating six new circuit courts, which in turn opened up 16 more judgeships, all of which were lifetime appointments and which outgoing President John Adams would fill with good patriotic Federalists. These were the infamous Midnight Judges, a label derived from the purported fact that Adams didn't sign their commissions until the night before Jefferson was inaugurated. Now, I want to take one moment to clarify something that I did see confused out there on the internet. John Marshall was not one of the Midnight Judges. He had been confirmed by the Senate on January 27th. The Act of 1801 was not passed until February 18th. But regardless of that fact, there was significant public outrage over the Midnight Judge scandal, and there would be repercussions. But wouldn't you know it, by the time March rolled around, and John Marshall was administering the oath of office to Thomas Jefferson, most of those responsible for it were either on their way home or wallowing away in irrelevancy in the congressional minority, leaving Marshall as one of the few prominent Federalists left with any power in the Capitol. But perhaps Marshall was ready for the burden and for the political fights ahead, as constitutional historian Edwin S. Corwin suggests when he wrote, a headstrong pilot might speedily have dashed his craft on the rocks. A timid one would have abandoned his course, but Marshall did neither. 
With that stubborn chin, that firm, placid mouth, that steady, benignant gaze, so capable of putting attorneys out of their countenance when they had faced it over long, here are the lineaments of self-confidence, unmarred by vanity, of dignity without condescension, of tenacity untouched by fanaticism, and above all, of an easy conscience and unruffled serenity. It required the lodestone of a great and thoroughly congenial responsibility to bring to light Marshall's real metal. And that is where we're going to leave off today, folks. Next time, I expect to return to the narrative as the Jefferson administration and its allies seek to rid the government of the Federalist contagion and remake it in their own image, judiciary and all. Real quick, I'd like to give a shout-out to the Agora Podcaster of the Month, which is Alison Gerlach, host of The Unapologetic Capitalist. She is a business professional who loves sharing her tips and inspirations with her listeners. If you're looking at ways to improve your business, Allison has answers for you, so do make sure you check out her show. I also want to thank everyone for your patience, as my schedule is substantially different in the summers than from the rest of the year, and even the most beloved of hobbies must take a secondary place to the necessities of parenthood. That being the case, this will probably be the only episode of August, but I do plan to be back with an episode for you in September. But until then, why not take advantage of Audible's special offer of a 30-day free trial that includes a free audiobook by visiting www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. There is no obligation to continue the service, and you can cancel at any time and even keep the audiobook as their gift to you. And if I might be so bold in this election season, let me suggest a title for you. I recommend Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, a fictional tale of how fascism can unexpectedly embed itself in the American body politic. Okay, so until next time, you can find me in the usual places on Twitter at American underscore bio, on Facebook, or contact me via email at American Biography Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com slash covered.